0: So 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. Last week, um, I preached and it was the encouraging part, okay? So like I said, I hope you came prepared today uh, because this week is the rough part and um, it will undoubtedly sound rough to you, but I think we all know that there are times in our lives that sometimes people need, maybe you need or you needed some form of tough love. I don't don't want to be too tried about it, but maybe if you've had somebody in your immediate family or your extended family with some kind of uh, drug issue or uh, there's some other kind of issue going on, eventually you get to the point where you need to have such a serious conversation that you just say, I can't do this anymore. And something needs to change. And that is the conversation that Paul had with the Thessalonians this Sunday that we discuss. And um, so forewarning, it will make you uncomfortable. Uh, Some of you may wholeheartedly disagree. And I can't convince you. I leave that up to God and his word and his spirit. But the, uh, the main point, just to give you the headline for today, is this. Paul says, and so we should hear, keep away from idle or disorderly Christians. It's pretty straightforward. Keep away from idle or disorderly Christians. And I think the first thing that we would think about hearing that, and the Thessalonians would think, as well as why. Now, this, again, is not something that has um, slowly um, That has come up quickly. Paul's not writing to them in the first letter, saying, keep away from these people. He's writing to them in the second letter, after multiple attempts of talking to them. And so he says, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every believer or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Paul's instruction is severe. And just so that we don't think there's any wiggle room here, this word for command is used throughout the New Testament. Here's a couple other places it's used. It's used by the Lord Jesus himself in Acts 1-4, talking to his apostles. He commands them to leave Jerusalem, or to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Holy Spirit. It's not messing around. It's also used in Acts later on, from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, who take the apostles for teaching this new message of Jesus, and they command them not to speak in his name. The word in Greek is used, like I said, throughout the New Testament a handful of times. It's not used that often, but it is used in closest sequence here in 2 Thessalonians 3, 4 through 12. It's used four times. Four times in verses 4 to 12. Paul is very serious about this. This is a command that must be obeyed. So, there's not a whole lot of room for another interpretation here. And what does Paul command? He says that idle or disorderly Christians... They need to be kept away from. There's really three different ways that people always translate this. It's, it's keep away from, stay away from, or withdraw from. All of them mean get away from the person. There's no wiggle room here either. Paul says this, is, this command is of utmost importance and you need to do it. So that's the headline and um, it would really benefit us to have a closer idea of what Paul means by idle believers. Stay away from these idle believers. The word for idle isn't just the word for lazy. We kind of naturally think that. Um, there's been a lot of popular teaching that says it's just an uh, equal um, function with lazy, but it's not. It's not. Idle is one way to translate it. Another way that people often do is to say, uh, I said this the other week when I was preaching, that it is disorderly. These are disorderly Christians, which gives you a little bit different idea of what's going on. And um, one of the main ways it's talked about in the contemporary Greek and Roman culture is to say that uh, this word is used to describe those who do not fulfill their obligations. They have things that they are supposed to be doing. They have things that they have committed to do, and they do not want to do them. They refuse to do them. So the word has the idea of refusing to do what they've already committed to doing. And it often brings the idea, it's often used in a military context, where you have somebody who is disorderly as a soldier, meaning that they're, they're Walking in line and they say, nah, I'm going to march out of this. I'm not interested in this anymore. Think about quitting boot camp or um, they're quitting ranks. So this is not some kind of light decision. This is a very intentional decision from these professing believers to say, I did believe what everybody else here believes. I, I did Put myself under the tradition, as Paul says, uh, of the apostles to say all that Jesus has said about his life and ministry, and at the same time saying yeah that's, that's good for some people it 's a noncommittal passive aggressive way of dealing with the Christian moral imperatives that fall upon us and so paul says i 'm not I'm not going to mess around about this anymore. We command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who's idle. So this is something, again, like Paul, uh, we saw last week, is talking about. This is a Christian community responsibility. This is a local church job. Paul does say later that these people, he commands them, Not to act this way, but here he's saying he commands you, the church, to not entertain this person or these kind of people any more. So he's obviously very serious about this, and this is something that um, Paul has already said in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. Comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Talked last week about how that's just a wonderful counseling uh, or a few weeks ago, a wonderful counseling verse, because you don't always deal with people in the same way, right? Sometimes they're discouraged. You need to lift them up. This kind of situation, Paul says, this person does not need to be encouraged. They do not, you do not need to be patient with this person anymore. What you need to do is you need to give them the truth. And our society, by and large, revolts at this idea. Finds it too invasive. But Paul finds it of utmost importance. And he continues, For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. So as Paul is talking about why, we need to keep away from idly, idle Christians, disorderly Christians. He's going to say there are reasons for this. Number one is that we imitate those that we are around. We imitate those around us. It's a natural function of friendship, natural function of being around people. You start to talk like them. Many of you probably had this experience earlier in life when you're around a lot of people in junior high. And someone gets upset because they're like, hey, that's my word. You can't use my word. The people that we are around are the people that we become like. And so Paul says, remember, I gave you a different picture. We gave you a different picture. He says, we were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. So here is how I think this happened. Paul comes into Thessalonica with a couple other companions. He plants the church, preaches the gospel, and then is observing the wider culture and the way that Christians are acting in that culture. New Christians, new believers. And says, there's something, there's something that's just not right. Something that's not right. And, and so he says, you know what? I'm not going to take anything from you. In a day where you were more notable as a speaker, a public speaker, the more money the people gave you. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't, you're a really good speaker, therefore you get good money. It was, you pay me a lot of money, and I'll be a really good speaker. And the Corinthians are upset at him for the same reason. They're like, no one will listen to you because you don't charge enough. And so Paul says, as he enters Thessalonica, there there was some kind of private conversation here, I'm sure, with his companions, uh, where he says, you know what? Let's not ask for any support here. We could totally get support. This is something the Lord Jesus himself advocated for, that those who make their um, living by the gospel should be provided by ministering the gospel. Um, But he said, we're not going to accept it. Not here. And this is something you see Paul doing actually as a rule for most of his ministry. He goes to Philippi. And then he says, "Um, you know what? Writes back to Ephesus or Thessalonica. We really, the church in Philippi really needs your help. So he gets money. From other places, it brings it there. He goes to Thessalonica and he writes to Philippi. He says, hey, Philippians, Thessalonica, they need your help bad. The church is suffering. But what he doesn't do as a pattern for his ministry is go into a city and say, you need to support me. Even though he says that is totally permissible. Totally permissible. Instead, when he gets here, again, because of something in the culture he looks at it and says, you know what? We're going to work. We're going to work hard day and night. Nobody is paying my bill. We go out to a restaurant, they're not paying. I pay for myself. Because he's seeing something that is unwholesome, that is unsavory in the culture. And so he says, what you, what you need to remember, brothers and sisters, is that you need to imitate us. We gave you a different picture entirely. Did you provide for us at all? Did we eat anybody 's bread without paying for it or without working for it? and the answer is no. He has a position that he has worked to achieve, and nobody can hold anything over his head. There is uh, in my notes an a, uh, article that I, I tied to from Justin Taylor that talks about how how beneficial even how Uh, imperative it is to pay ministers for preaching the gospel. So uh, Paul says it. There's a great article that you could follow up on there. But in this instance, Paul says, no, you're not going to do it. Because he says, we want to give for you a model. We We want to live a life for you that you can look at and we can say, imitate, do this thing. What we are giving you is the free grace of God in preaching the gospel. You didn't pay for it. You didn't earn it. It is totally a gift. So Paul says, imitate us. We worked hard apart from preaching the gospel, but then we preach the gospel. Imitate us. Don't be like those Christians that just want ease and comfort their whole life and live off of the wealth of others. We'll get to what's going on in the culture in a second, but just want to pause here at this point to ask a question. This is is not the first thing that Paul, um, not the first city he's been in where he says essentially, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. And there's something that's really powerful here that I think we miss out on so much as an issue of discipleship. When is the last time that you just told somebody Imitate me. Do what I do. I think most of us are very scared to do that. Paul is not scared in the least. He says, I have a life to offer that is wholesome, that is good, that is to be modeled. Imitate me. To a whole church, imitate us. And so I wonder for you, have you ever done that? Have you ever just... Grabbed a younger brother or sister in the faith and said, Imitate me. It's not, it's not proud. It's not prideful. It could be. But Paul's not here. And he even encourages this Imitate me. And so I'm sure that later on other churches could look at the Thessalonians and say, Imitate me. Be like this church. It's something that we should definitely consider in the Christian life. Do we have a life that we can pass on, that we can imitate, but are, are you willing? Are there, are there any people in your life that you can do that with? We need to be, this needs to be a normal part of our church and every church where you have older and younger Christians. You're not perfect. You're not, right? You, haven't, you don't have everything figured out. You don't have to. But there should be some parts of your life where you say, I am not a new believer. I have grown. I can study the Bible. I have devotional times. Here's, Here's how I deal with trying to have devotional time in the midst of managing all these kids. Here's how I read the Bible, even though I have all these other responsibilities at work. These are things that we have to pass on in imitation. So Paul says that if that we need to keep away from idle or disorderly Christians. Why? Because this is an imitation issue. If you're around them, you will become like them. And he says, don't be like them, be like us. Secondly, Paul says that we need to keep away from idle or disorderly Christians because we will become self-centered. That's the biggest way that you can think about it. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. In fact, when we were with you, This is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. This phrase, busy bodies, is really what will help us understand the culture that Paul is talking about and that he's trying to resist. But he says, that this command, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. this is what we said last time. Now, we don't have that recorded in First Thessalonians, but he's saying, when we were there with you last time, this is explicitly what we said. And this brings up an idea. There's, sometimes in translations, there's, there's a, a bridge that you have to cross, where you say, how do we interpret this? Do we go with the word for word, or the idea for idea kind of route? And... This is why you have teachers. This is why you have studies, Bibles, and all kinds of stuff to help you with this. With this phrase in particular, they are not busy, but busy buddies. There is a play on words in Greek that that captures. So that's right. It translates for us in English. Busy, busy buddies. Ha, ha, ha. We get it, right? But um, there's another sentiment here that is more word for word that we miss. And that is uh, for the word busy buddies. It brings up an idea of, Of patronage. Patronage was one of the biggest systems that the New Testament operated on. It's actually overall an Eastern mindset, an Eastern philosophy of life. And um, there's no surprise to us because this is the same thing that happens in the Old Testament. So this is definitely uh, giving you big points on the Bible quiz here. But if you knew how the Old Testament operated, it is operating in a system. That is called the suzerain vassal system. There is a Lord and there is a servant, a suzerain and a vassal. In the New Testament, this is also going on in the patron system. There is a patron who is essentially the Lord and there is a client. And in this system that is working in the day, um, we see that this this is not wholly a bad thing in and of itself. In fact, God is the patron most often in the New Testament. When we hear Paul all through his letters say praise and glory be to the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, that's a way of giving honor. It's a way of living in this patron relationship. And it's a little different for us. I'll, I'll give you some uh, application ideas in a little bit, but... Um, it It is, for the most part, far removed from us. It's hard to connect with. It's hard to understand. It's a different culture. It's a different way of operating, of being, of living, relating. But there is essentially a patron who is the benefactor, and then there is a client who is the benefactee. This is how one theologian put it. Clients depend on their rich patrons receiving benefits from them, such as food, money, and representation, while the patrons enjoyed the public honor that accrued to their account for having so many clients. In this relationship, the patron was under social obligation to continue the economic and social support of his or her clients. To cut a client off, Would place the patron in a relationship of enmity with the client. Are you following? This is very different for us. So there is this system, this way of living and relating and being in the New Testament that is underneath everything that Paul is saying. And again, the system in and of itself is not bad. God is the patron. We are the clients, if you want to talk about it that way. He's the Lord. We are the servants. And in this system, the patron provides food, they provide clothing, they provide stuff, they provide a voice recognition, and they give that to all of the clients. And the client, in this other reciprocal manner, has nothing to provide. I was talking with uh, my kids about this yesterday. We we're going on a walk. And I asked one of them, I said, okay, so if I'm if your patron, then I'm giving you food. I'm giving you clothing. I'm giving you a voice, representation. You don't have any position by which you can say, oh, I want more of this. You don't, you don't have that. So I'm providing all that stuff for you. So what else can you give me? Um, I can give you my house. Okay, no, this is not your house. This is my house. You can't give me that. Um, what can you give me? Nothing. Not quite. You can give me honor. And for an Eastern worldview, the idea is that honor is a currency. And you see this all through the New Testament when you look at Jesus in his model prayer. What does he say? Our Father in heaven, honored be your name. Hollywood be your name. This is very much the currency of the Old Testament and spills into New Testament for people who are in the client position. They don't have anything to give back except honor. And in this system, the patron provides all these things and in return the client provides honor. Now this is where it gets tricky because a client providing honor to the patron increases the status of the patron. If you have 100 clients, you have some measure of status. If you have 1,000 clients, well, you must be some kind of patron. You are a real benefactor here. And unfortunately, what was common in Paul's day is that the patrons would essentially just try to get as many people as clients as possible. Are they really caring for them from their heart? No. Some were. Some are believers. On the flip side, what about the clients? It's not really about honoring the patron. They just want free food. You see this with Jesus as he is giving out free food with the fish and the loaves. So in this system, Paul enters Thessalonica, and he says, something's not right here. Something's off. He sniffs out something wicked. And so Paul will teach extremely countercultural things, economically upsetting things. Paul taught Christian clients that they should not depend on their patrons. If they can not depend on them. Paul also taught that patrons, that they were not obligated to continue supporting believers who did not work or weren't willing to work. We don't have time to get into it, but there's a whole other passage here uh, that's a good corollary. When you see Paul go into Ephesus and Acts and the the uprising, the, the riot even of the city, he gets the whole city, hundreds of thousands of people in an uproar. They go to the theater and they're all crying for him. Why? Because idol worship has been turned over. In the planting of the gospel and the spread of the gospel, Paul says, hey, Christians, you can't worship idols anymore. The silver ones that you buy from Demetri over there, you can't do it. And there's economic upheaval. In the same way, here for the Thessalonians, Paul comes and says, there's a system And you guys are, you can't do it anymore. You cannot continue to be a Christian and do these things. And again, Paul is um, very particular about what he says here. He's going to say that if a person isn't willing to work. So these are people, outside of the scope of this conversation with Paul, is people who, they have no other way. They need benefactors they can't work for themselves. Whatever the reason is. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's mental. They can't do it. So as I look at this, I I find that there's um, a little bit of an application emerging as I look into the text here. His use of the term willing uh, busybodies brings up Another quote from the same author. He says, the idea is not that these people had too much time on their hands, as often as you probably have heard. The problem is rather the involvement of clients in public assembly where they supported the causes of their patrons, entangling themselves in issues that were properly none of their concern. At issue is their political participation in favor of their patron. So here's the tricky part. This system turned wrong now has a horrible application where you have believers. Okay, Paul goes into Thessalonica, preaches the gospel. You have patrons that believe the gospel. You have clients that believe the gospel. And in this system that they are entangled in, they say, oh, well, yes, I know that my patron is doing some things that they shouldn't do. Maybe some bad business practice. Maybe they're cheating people. Maybe uh, they're abusing people. But if I were to say something about that as a client, then I would lose my stuff. I would have to work with my hands. And so the, the Christian clients say, um, it's just better just to leave well enough alone. I'm not going to do anything about that. Or the patrons, on the flip side, they have clients that really help provide a support base for them and elevate their status. And the Christian clients would easily say today, well, I don't, I don't want to alienate anybody. If I have any kind of hard conversation with them about how they need to get a job because they can actually do it, and they're, they're consuming resources that other people who actually need those resources would get... I can't, I can't do anything about that because then I actually lower my social status, my standing in society. And so Paul writes to say, you've got to stop this. This is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue because you're, you're defrauding people. This is not how God wants you to act. And like I said, this is a different system to us for the most part, but I thought of some ideas. We're we'll going to past you. I'm not going to talk about them too much. Welfare. There are three institutions that God has given us as humans. He's given us family, he's given us the church, and he's given us government. So I'm not saying that family and government can't do other things paul is talking to the church and he's saying when you have people in the church who refuse to work just because they want an easy life you need to separate from them instruction needs to be had but ultimately you need to say this is so serious i can't even eat a meal with you anymore you're in sin. We have a, uh, a whole online economic business platform now called Patreon. Same word. People, uh, I'm not saying all of Patreon is bad or people who use Patreon are bad, but a lot of Patreon is not necessarily contributing anything. Or Twitch. Maybe you're not familiar with Twitch. Here's how Twitch works. Uh, It can work easily most of the time. I'm going to play a video game. I'll play a video game. You can watch me play the video game and pay me for it. I was wondering for so many years why this idea rubbed me the wrong way. Now I know. I have the biblical explanation for it. Or when you think about YouTube influencers... I'm not saying there's not content that people can create in public speaking or research or writing is not real work. But if you ever listen to the interviews of some of the top influencers of the day, um, what they sound like, they're not using this language. They're patrons. They say, I have all these constituents. I have all of these clients that are looking to me for help and influence. We do still live in these systems. Maybe they're not as obvious as they were in the East so many years ago. They still happen in many other countries of the world, very clearly. But Paul's, Paul's saying, if you if you have people who are unwilling to work because they just want a nice, easy life, you can't let that go. So third... Paul says, the reason that you need to keep away from these kind of Christians is because we can't help anyone else or do good. Verse 12, Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. The real shame of not keeping away from the idle or disorderly Christians is that we end up hurting our brothers and sisters in the faith and become ineffective in gospel work. Think about it this way. Along the first point, we only care about ourselves and so we pass on opportunities to serve others. We don't have enough money so we can't be generous to others if we're this idle Christian, and we are bought by a benefactor, so we never speak up against something that's wrong. Maybe one of the clearest ways that we could see it is Paul doesn't receive any support financially from the Thessalonians because he would not be put in anybody's pocket. He wouldn't do it. He says, If I accept this meal from you, I know what this is. This is not just a meal, it's leverage. You're trying to gain leverage. And Paul wisely says, this is a system I will not partake in. And so what is the solution here? Paul says, very simply, the solution, work quietly. Paul's instruction is about as simple as you can get, but what it does is it fills up the time of idle believers of disorderly believers. There's the old quote about how idle hands are the devil's playthings. Rings very true in this kind of situation. Believers, to get out of this system and to start working hard, now they can do things. Now it's not only about them. Now they can actually provide for other people. You see, the Christian life is not Meant simply to take care of ourselves and only ourselves, maybe a couple of close friends. No, the Christian life is a call to generosity, and these Christians couldn't do it because they're just doing the bare minimum. And we need this admonishment, we need this word from Paul. There's a biblical counseling. Professor who talks about this passage this way. Some of the very first words of Jesus' ministry were an admonishment. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Praise the Lord that Jesus did not say something culturally sensitive like, You do you. As our culture likes to say, we would be in the worst danger possible had God's admonishment to repent not been delivered to our hearts. Had God not intervened, we would be hopelessly unable and unwavering in our descent to destruction. That's a great way to put it. When we look at Jesus, as he's saying, in Jesus' model, in Jesus' life, we see some remarkable things. Jesus, even though living in this ancient Near Eastern culture, grew up and worked a job as a carpenter. Hard work for 30, 33 years. Grew up poor, worked hard all day, all night. He knew something of hard work. At the same time, in his public ministry, Jesus in John 4 says, Do you want to know what my work is, disciples? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's the kind of work I really want to do. And Jesus also think about think about this tempting situation. I mean, you have you have somebody over you who says, You don't need to you don't need to work. I'll just give you food, I'll give you what you need. You just spread the word about me. Whatever my political bias is, you just go out there and you tell other people. Or I'm really, I'm running for election. Getting serious here, isn't it? What I need you to do, Christian, is I need you to go around and talk to all your other Christian friends and tell them how great a patron I am and they need to follow me. Jesus doesn't get involved in this kind of thing. At the highest level, when Jesus is brought out to the desert to be tempted, the last temptation was that the devil took him, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, and said, I will give you all of these. I'll provide for you. I'll be your patron. You just bow the knee. Worship me. Jesus said, depart from me. Because it's written, worship and serve the Lord. Jesus, at the same time, he did more good. You see, the, the, the real application, I think, that hits us here, the last thing Paul talks about, is that we become totally ineffective. Idle Christians become totally ineffective. They can't contribute anything good. But Jesus, on the other hand, he contributed more good than anyone who has ever lived or will live. By his death, by his life, by his resurrection. Seated now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus provided forgiveness of sins. He could not have done that if he didn't come and do the work of salvation. So for you today, hear this word from the Lord. If you are a Christian that says, I just want an easy life. I want, to, I want to live off of others. I don't want to do hard work. Or on the flip side, as a patron. I just want other people to lift me up, speak well of me all the time, give me more social status. Paul says, no. Go get a job. Go work quietly. Go, con- go earn so that you can share and be generous with other people. This work of Jesus, it makes me think about part of a hymn from an old hymn writer who says, Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what his, this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and Lord, we say uh, we're weak and we need your strength. Lord, if we are afraid of other people and speaking into their life, God, would you lift us up and embolden us? Lord, if we're more concerned about Comfort and ease than actually living for you. God, would you correct us? Would you help us? Would you give us a vision of Jesus and his great work of salvation that we are the beneficiaries of, we didn't do anything for? It's all of grace. Lord, we thank you for your Son.